Well, good morning, Fullerton Free. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff, and uh, it's nice to have you with us this morning, this first Sunday in January. If you're joining us for the first time and uh, you're trying to navigate a little bit here, we're beginning a brand new teaching series this morning in the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, uh, maybe you're already open there since we were just reading. Uh, If you've been around a little bit, you've already probably got a copy of the Titus Journal. That has become a tool for us as a church that's been, I think, incredibly valuable as we work through these books of the Bible. Uh, The journal has both the, the... On one of the pages, it's got the text that we'll be studying, uh, the whole text of the book of Titus. And then on the other page, it's got uh, basically blank lines where you can fill in some of the things you're learning, some of the things that the Spirit of God may say to you as we go through, or maybe even some of the reflections and learnings that you've got uh, in your own study of this book as we progress through it together. Uh, It's a great place to draw pictures or make sketches, or I mean, it's just a great way to respond. So if you're watching at home and uh, and you haven't got a, a copy of that Titus journal, let us know. We, we can send one of those to you in the mail. You can come by the church office and pick one up. Or if you come to one of our uh, in-person services, we're doing in-person services on the rooftop of our parking garage, believe it or not, at 1111 every Sunday and at 530 in the evening. You can grab one of those Titus journals there. But this morning we're starting a brand new service. So if you are a, a, a brand new series, so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. And we hope that you will come to feel uh, as if this is your family and your home. And it's a great place for you to dive in with us together. Now, as we look at Titus, uh, to kind of set it up a little bit, let me just say a couple of things to sort of prepare you for the study and kind of give you a brief overview. The book of Titus is relatively short. In fact, I've read it a couple of times uh, over the last week, just rapidly. And you can read this book in about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on, uh, depending on your reading pace and whatever. You'll want to go back over it a little more slowly to get full comprehension. But it isn't a lengthy book. It's a letter that Paul wrote to Titus, uh, Paul being... An apostle, a guy who was formerly a persecutor of Christians, a guy who uh, was transformed by Jesus on the road to Emmaus and was called to preach the gospel, uh, then also raised up people around him and they went out planting churches and he assigned these different leaders in different places. And he's writing to Titus who he, as he says here in the text, he's left in Crete. Now Crete is an island uh, off of Greece and uh, it's about 160 miles across. It's not gigantic, but at the time in which this was written, there were a group of new believers, new followers of Christ. In fact, if we look at the book of Acts, uh, we see that there were people from this region who likely were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled all the people. And so we know that what we've got here is the beginning of a a local church, a local group of following. And it's not even just in one place. Some historians estimate that there may have been as many as 90 little cities and villages on the Isle of Crete. And so we get, we get here from what Paul says, um, that there is a, a church that's sort of growing, a young church that's being established. And what Paul is doing in the writing of this letter is he's reminding Titus of the way in which to organize these congregations or these gatherings. When we talk about church, remember, we're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a big room. We're talking about the body of Christ. The, the idea of an assembly or an ecclesia is just a gathering of God's people. And what Paul is endeavoring to do in the book of Titus, like he does with Timothy and Ephesus in First and Second Timothy, um, he's trying to let Titus know about a way in which to order these young congregations so as to put the gospel of Christ on display. So as to put the gospel of Christ on display. I don't know uh, whether, you know, 2021 has stirred in you the desire to make some new goals. I think it's interesting when we come around the corner into a new year, it can be a good time to sort of try some new things, maybe launch into a new hobby or maybe change some of your habits or whatever. I read uh, somebody wrote this week that their, uh, their goal for 2021 
was to do all of the things they planned to do in 2020 because of the promises they made in 2019, because of the needs they recognized in 2018, because of the deficiencies in their life in 2017. So I think, you know, we can look at it and go, I wasn't able to get very much done in 2020, but it it's kind of goes back further than that, right? We make these new goals and we make new goals because we have uh, we, we have a sense of what our purpose is. We have a sense of who we want to be and what it is that drives us. Well, what I love in the book of Titus is that number one, in Paul's greeting, which we're going to look at in just a second, he very clearly articulates his own purpose, his calling and his reason for writing. And we will find that in our own lives as followers of Christ, as, as people who've been called to the very same things, that we find in his purpose a solidarity for us individually and also for us corporately. His purposes and his goals as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus are the very same goals that we should have, both as individual followers of Christ, but also as a corporate body of Christ in Fullerton, meeting at the corner of Bray and Bastoncherry. He will several times in this book, and I don't want to get, it's not a long book, so I don't want to teach other people's passages that we're going to come to later. But in each one of these chapters, which by the way, chapters one, two, and three, those are arbitrary breaks. Remember, this would have been a singular letter that Paul wrote to Titus. But in each one of the chapters, there are practical things, very practical things, in fact, about the outworking both of the church and the home and of our individual lives, the way we deal with false teachers, the way we deal with people who would want to lead us from the truth. But there are also some deep theological sections in in each chapter. And so as we work your way through, you'll see, even in his greeting, I love his greeting in verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at that here as we begin. But there's deep theology in this, which requires you to sort of process doctrine. Now, one of the major themes of the book of Titus is the idea of sound doctrine. In fact, you'll see those words together several times. So let me just sort of clarify before we get too deep in what we're talking about when we talk about sound doctrine. The idea of sound doctrine, the word sound there, is the idea of wholeness or health or wellness. It means a, uh, a complete view. And doctrine, when we think about doctrine, we tend to think of it as like a set of principles or a set of, uh, like, our church has a doctrinal statement. And it's like a bullet-pointed list of things we believe. And so many times when we think about doctrine, we're thinking of, of things that we affirm or principles that we agree to. And while it is that, in one sense, the idea here, the word that's translated doctrine in the book of Titus, the original word has to do with instruction, both the act of instruction and also the content of instruction. So there's something very practical and active about it. It's not just a list of things that we would say we agree with, but when it talks in this book about holding on to sound doctrine or teaching sound doctrine, there's a little bit of redundancy in that because to teach sound doctrine is to teach whole teaching or to teach uh, healthy uh, principles in in their entirety. There's both an active and a passive way to look at that. So it isn't just about checking the box and saying, I believe all the bullet points in the list, but it's about understanding both what has been taught by Christ himself, by God through the inspiration of scriptures and through his prophets, and then also what has been taught through the teaching of the apostles here. We hold on to that, to their teaching, and it shapes and guides our lives, right? So he's going to talk about sound doctrine a lot. But let's look at his introduction here. It's a deeply theological introduction, and it's worth looking at because it will give us a sense of where he's going in the rest of the book. He starts like this in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now remember here, apostle just means sent one, right? That means someone who was sent. It's an ambassador. 
He says in this that he sees himself as a servant of God. Uh, The English translations here have kind of lightened this up a little bit. Servant is a lot more palatable to us than slave. But the word that's translated here of, of what Paul is before God could just as easily have been translated slave. He sees himself as one who is entirely given over to the service of another. Right? Paul, a servant or a slave of God and an apostle or a sent one of Jesus Christ. And then he says why, why he is those things. Why is he a servant of God and an apostle of Christ? He says, for the sake. And look, at there, there are three key components to what he's for the sake of. He's an apostle and a servant for the sake of something. And I want to look at each of these three in turn. He says, I am an apostle and a servant for the sake, number one, of the faith of God's elect. Now, we could teach a whole sermon just on what he means. That he's a sent one of Christ and a servant of God for the sake of of the faith of God's elect. What's he talking about? He's talking about saving faith. Those that God has chosen. When he talks about God's elect, we believe and the Bible teaches that God chooses those who will believe in him. That he has chosen them before the beginning of time. If you're listening to this today and you're a follower of Christ, that isn't purely because you sort of reasoned in your own mind and pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and did something to make yourself worthy of salvation or to procure for yourself redemption life. We believe that God chose you. That God chose you to make that decision, to follow him faithfully. Now, the way in which free will and uh, predestination or election work together, we don't totally always understand. There's a little bit of mystery there. But the, the reality is that we affirm that there are those that God has chosen. And he's saying, I'm an apostle and a servant for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, th- there's two meanings to that. The two meanings, number one, are for the growing faith of those who God has chosen. The growing faith, a big part of what we do in the course of the, of the work of a local church like Fullerton Free or like the church in Crete was the growing faith, the ongoing sanctification, the transformation of those who are believers. So he says, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of his elect. That's talking about the growth in faith. But it's also true that there's an evangelistic dimension to his work. The evangelistic dimension to his work, which we also share at Fullerton Free, is that those whom God has chosen would come to know Christ would come to know the truth of the gospel, would come to know that they can be rescued from sin and death. So he says, I'm a servant and I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I'm serving the faith of God's chosen, both that they would come to faith and that they would grow in faith. Now, secondly, he says this. He says, I I, I serve for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And then he says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So you might at first take this and go, well, okay, so he's come for faith and also for intellectual understanding, right? He's come and he's serving, he's writing this letter for the sake of people's faith and also that they would learn a bunch of facts and have them in their head. It's important for you to understand, number one, that he says plainly that that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. He says, I've come in service or for the sake of a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. It's never simply the ability to win at Bible trivia or to answer all the Bible questions correctly or even to recite all of the bullet points on a doctrinal statement, right? That's not what he's coming to serve. He's coming to serve what he calls a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The end purpose is godliness, which which essentially just means God-centeredness or God-likeness. We talk a lot in this church about the revelation of Christ, that our individual lives and thought and word and deed and attitude are meant to glorify God as we put Jesus on display. What he's saying here is that this knowledge, right, this knowledge leads to 
a revelation of Christ, a healthy revelation of Christ. He says, this is why I'm writing. This is why I'm a servant and an apostle. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and for a knowledge of the truth. Now, the thing that's important to know here, too, is that Paul actually uses the phrase. And you, if, you're, if you have one of the journals, you could underline where he says knowledge of the truth. Or you might circle that. Paul uses that phrase regularly. And he doesn't mean it in a sense of a comprehensive understanding of all the doctrinal statements of the Christians at the time. Although, in some ways, that's included. But centrally, when, when Paul talks about a knowledge of the truth, in quotes... Right? Maybe that thing you've just underlined. He is always talking about a knowledge of Christ Jesus himself. He's always talking about the gospel. I can show you several different examples of that. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, uh, it says this. That, that, uh, well, actually, I'll look even at 3. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What is the knowledge of the truth? It's recognizing that there's one God and one Savior, this mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is what it means to, to know the truth. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, we see this idea of the knowledge of the truth again. In 24 and 25 of 2 Timothy 2, it says... The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This knowledge of the truth is what? It's the gospel. It's an understanding of the fact that man by himself is ensnared by the devil, is dead and lost in sin. And Jesus, through his great grace and mercy and love, came to the earth, took our sin upon himself, died on the cross, not because he deserved to, but because we deserve to. He shed his blood on our behalf, paid the penalty for our sin, was buried dead, but rose from the grave, and in so doing, proved that he has power over death and grave. Not only does he pay the penalty for our sin, but then by his grace, he extends to us this very same resurrection life. The theme of grace will come up multiple times in each chapter of this book. The idea of the grace of God. When he says, I'm coming for the sake of the faith of the elect and for the knowledge of the truth. I want you to understand that when he says the knowledge of the truth, he's talking about an understanding of the grace of Christ. An understanding of the grace of Christ. In fact, when we go to, uh, when we go to Titus chapter 2, if we were to look at Titus uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 2, it says, the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What does he say leads to godliness or to renunciation of ungodliness in Titus 2, 10 and 11 or 11 and 12? He says it's the grace of Christ. It's no different than in Titus 3, 5 through 8, where he says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us, Right? It's the grace of God that is the knowledge of the truth. Understanding the grace and the love of God that is the knowledge of truth that, that Paul is saying leads to godliness. That's what he's come to serve. It might feel like, I'm, like I'm, I'm hitting this too hard. But it's important for you to understand that what I think we're seeing here in his introduction is this, uh, this trinity, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but a trinity we see repeated throughout the scripture of faith, hope, and love. I think we're seeing faith, hope, and love. It would be easy to look at this and say, oh, well, no, the next thing he's going to talk about is a hope of eternal life. So it's faith, knowledge, and hope, right? He's talking about faith, 
knowledge and hope. I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he's affirming that knowledge or intellectual understanding is on par with faith and hope. I think when he says knowledge of the truth, he's pointing directly at the love of Christ. At the grace of Christ. It is a knowledge of the grace of Christ that leads to godliness, he'll say several times. And so he says here, what am I doing? I'm an apostle, I'm a servant for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. In that he means the love of Christ which leads to godliness. And thirdly, thirdly he says, then back to Titus chapter 1, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He says, I'm here and I'm writing and I'm serving. I'm an apostle and a servant for the sake of the faith of Christ, uh, of God's elect, for, for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's the grace and love of Christ and for a hope in eternal life. And he doesn't just say a hope in eternal life, but he says a hope in eternal life, which we can have confidence in because God who does not lie promised this in ages past has made it manifest now, both in, in the death and resurrection of Christ, but also in Christ's call of Paul himself to preach that very same gospel. He says, this isn't just something that just recently arrived on the scene. This isn't something that, just, uh, that we just sort of thought up. He says, no, this hope of eternal life was promised by God before the beginning of time, has been made manifest in the incarnation of Christ and in the call to preach the gospel and continues into eternity. That's the very nature of eternal life. That it, that it goes on and on and on. He says, this, is, this has been our hope forever. And it's rooted in God's promise before we were even a speck in our parents' eye. This is what he's come to do, to serve faith and love that leads to godliness, grace that leads to godliness, and hope of eternal life. That's what he's come to do, to put these things on display. Everything he's going to say in the rest of this book is rooted in these same ideas. That we would put faith, hope, and love on display. In fact, uh, I didn't read it just a second ago, but the, the verse that gives the name to our series is actually in, uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10. And, it, and at the end of a long list of things where he's advising people to live and to serve and to teach and to share, at the end of that, after he's talked to servants and slaves, he says in verse 10, to tell bondservants not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. You see, there are things we believe, there are doctrinal statements that might be in a bullet-pointed list, but we are called to be a physical manifestation. To adorn the doctrine of God means to decorate God's doctrine, to garnish God's doctrine, that people would look at us and see the truth of the things we believe. He says, I've come in service or for the sake of the faith of God's elect, right? For, for the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness and for a hope in eternal life, faith, hope, and love, that I put these things on display. And what he'll go on to do in the rest of this book then is to give practical ways both in the church and in the home and in our individual lives where we can adorn the doctrine of God. We can take what we believe, what has been taught, the instruction, both the teaching and the act of teaching, and we can make those things revealed in our lives. We can put them on display, adorning the doctrine of God. That's, that's what he's aiming at here. Put that on display. I love the fact that he finishes this greeting by saying this in verse four to Titus, my true child in a common faith. This is a beautiful statement. You might not get even all of the sentiment that's attached, but when he says my true child in a common faith, he's talking about Titus. Titus was a Gentile. 
Titus, in fact, was the one that Paul brought to Jerusalem to prove that Gentiles could be Christians even though they were uncircumcised. That's an, that's an awkward meeting to attend, by the way. But, but Titus is a Gentile. And here we have Paul saying, Titus isn't just a co-worker. He's not just a co-laborer. Titus is my true child, he says. We are family in a common faith, both Jew and Gentile, right? There's a beautiful affirmation in that. He says to Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace are only possible because of the work of Christ. Now he's going to go on and give us some practical instruction. And the first set of practical instruction we see in this section has to do with elders, right? So let's look at that together in verses 5 through 9. Again, what, what's he trying to do here? He's trying to tell Titus, hey, you've got these young churches on Crete. You've got these young assemblies or these young gatherings. And, and they're all sort of disorganized. So this is the way he says in, in 5 through 9. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order. Okay, get, get, the, get the flow of thinking here. He's just introduced himself as a servant or a slave and an apostle of Christ, right? Serving the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, and a hope in eternal life which was promised in ages past and fulfilled in Christ and in his preaching today. And then he says, this is why I left you there. I left you there so that you might put what remained into order. Again, if you have a journal this morning, I might invite you to take a pencil or a pen and underline the words into order. To organize, to create some sort of structure and orderliness, right? I've left you there specifically so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. The appointment of elders is only one part of what Titus has been called to do in order to put these young fledgling churches into order. And we're going to see that throughout. But the appointment of eldership is really interesting. So here's what he says. He starts with the appointing of elders. He says, I've sent you there to put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach... The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul says here, in order to put things into order, I left you there in Crete so that you would put things in order and the first order of business should be appointing elders. Now, now just so you know, in this text and throughout the New Testament, uh, the word there first that's translated elder is the word presbyteros. That's a, a word that's rooted in the Hebrew idea of an elder in the synagogue. It's got uh, the idea of... Um, I don't want to necessarily use the word prestige, but maybe more of dignity, right? Presbyteros has to do with elders in the synagogue. It would have been a very familiar word to any of the Jewish people that were listening. By the way, the letter's not only written to Titus specifically, but it's meant to be read in the churches that Titus is serving, right? The word presbyteros that we translate elder is, is, a, is a picture of leadership and dignity. The other word we're going to see in this particular text is the word, uh, the word episkopos. That's the word that in our Titus, in Titus here in English, it's translated overseer. We believe those are, those are the very same thing. We're not talking about two different, uh, two different leadership roles. We're not two, two different positions. If you look in First Timothy, if you look at what it says in Hebrews, Hebrews actually will talk about leaders who've been set over the church of God. That, that idea of leaders is the same idea. Shepherd, leader, 
overseer, right? These are, these are the same. Episcopos, presbyteros, there's the idea of an elder. Um, the presbyteros idea had to do with dignity and may, maybe sort of the idea of honor. The idea of the episcopos has more to do with function. It's a role. It's someone who is overseeing. In fact, uh, we see really clearly when, when we look at, um, at Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, it talks about the fact that the overseers are meant to shepherd the flock of God. To care for them. We believe that all elders are shepherds, by the way. I'll talk a little bit about our organization here in our church specifically in a second. But we believe that elders are called to shepherd the flock of God. That all elders, all overseers or elders are meant to shepherd. That that's part of what they're called to do. Not only are they called to shepherd, but we believe that they're called to steward as well. It says in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. That's the idea of a servant. Or actually, I love the word steward here. It's actually, uh, the Greek word is oikonomon which is rooted in the word oikos, which means a servant in God's circle. Does that make sense? So we just talked last week about the fact that we're organizing our church around the idea that every individual has an oikos or a circle. They've got a household. And what it says here about elders is that each one is called to be a servant, a butler, if you will, or a steward of God's oikos. That's what oikonomon means, right? Of God's circle, a servant in that context, right? So we do have words here that mean the same thing. Essentially, it's the same rule. Presbyteros, over, uh, which, which means elder, and uh, episkopos, which means overseer. But they're the same function. They're called to shepherd and to steward the body of Christ. Now, what is interesting in this, we're going to look at the qualifications. Because he gives qualifications for the elders, how to decide who will be the elder in that case. But one of the things I want you to note here is we look both at what is seen in Titus 1. And also, you, if you want to see something similar, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. I'm not going to turn there this morning for the sake of time. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-13, through 13, you see a very similar instruction that Paul gives to Timothy with regard to the church in Ephesus. Now, what's interesting is that there are some slight distinctions. There are some slight differences between what we see in 1 Timothy 3 and what we see in Titus 1, and even what we see in some other incidental passages that refer to elders in other places. What we take from that is that there isn't probably just one set of rules for what an elder must be in every context, but that the church has some freedom, the individual locale have some freedom to contextualize, to think about the particular circumstance they're in. I think when Paul writes to Timothy, there are specific things he's telling Timothy to look for with regard to elders in Ephesus that are slightly different, although not greatly different, from what he's telling Titus to look for for elders in Crete. They're subtle differences, but I think they're important differences, and you can compare those on your own time. But the things we can affirm out of this is that these elders are meant to be local, and by that I mean he's not grabbing people from Ephesus to come and be elders in Crete, but rather he's raising up elders in Crete for the assemblies in Crete, and raising up elders in Ephesus to be, to be leaders in Ephesus. They're local, we can affirm that. We can affirm that they're plural. We see that even with the Jerusalem church, which was much larger, that it's a plurality of elders. Now, I don't think that that's, uh, I, I don't think that's prescriptive. I don't think it, it has to be a plurality of elders. I think that in some of these little assemblies in Crete, it probably would have been one elder. And he would have been doing essentially my role that I serve in this church, which is of the shepherd teacher, someone who's doing all of these things singularly. There are all kinds of churches across America that are tiny little places where they got one elder. And it's one person who does the teaching and the preaching. He mows the grass. He oversees the deacon meetings. He does funerals and weddings and whatever. There's one other. As the churches get larger, like we see in the Jerusalem church, and you can read about that in Acts. Uh, you could look at that in both Acts 
11 and Acts 14, I think there is a growing need for a plurality of elders. There's a growing need for, for more than one, right? And so there is a sense in which, like what we've got in our church, there are 10, we have 10 elders, including myself as the teacher shepherd elder, and then also Jeff Lilly, uh, who is our associate lead shepherd, and he's also an elder. The majority, the bulk of the teaching that happens in this church is done by elders. Jeff and I do the, the bulk of that. We do occasionally have other people teach, and when those other people teach, which we'll talk about in a second when we get to the end of this section, those people do so under the authority and the guidance and the direction of the elders, right? That's always happening under the authority of the elders. But what I want you to see here as well is that in his instruction for appointing elders, there's not really a hierarchy. There's not really a sense of uh, representatives or presidents or vice presidents or chairman or vice chairman. Or, there's no idea here, uh, some of the corporate language that we bring into the church, the idea of a board of directors. There's no CEO, there's no COO, none of those things are added here. Uh, this church is not instructed to write a constitution or to have bylaws. This is not a church that's instructed to, uh, to take a vote on anything, right? I want you to see here that these are elders who are appointed based on their qualifications. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for an elder meeting to be run according to the, you know, the regular rules of organization. It doesn't mean it's wrong to have a chairman. But what it does mean, and because we certainly do have a chairman and a vice chairman and a treasurer and we, we've got a secretary, all those things. But in some ways what's happened is that sort of uh, American ideas or even corporate ideals have seeped into the church and we started to believe those things are dictated in the scripture when in fact they're not. What's dictated in the scripture is the idea of a, an elder who is qualified, who is appointed, and that's a point of distinction as well. The elder is not the, uh, he's not the winner of a runoff. He's not the, uh, the one who puts up the most signs and can rally the most people. He is someone who's appointed by Titus. Titus was appointed by Paul. Paul was appointed by Christ. It's about appointment, right? It's not democracy. It's not a popular vote. It's appointment. What we can affirm here out of the text is that these men are local, that they are plural, that they are appointed, and that they are qualified. Those are the only certainties. The differences here with Timothy and other New Testament accounts show a flexibility for context and circumstance. Titus appoints, but the qualifications would have had to have been assessed by the local bodies. And that's, again, what we do here. So just so you know, at Fullerton Free, we have 10 elders, uh, two of which are on our vocational staff, myself and Jeff Lilly. Um, but then we've got another eight elders. And the way those elders are put into place is that early in the year, we actually did this already in, uh, in August, September, October, we, we asked the body for names. Men who fit these qualifications and the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The, the body of Christ, the local body here, submit those names of people we would call candidates, but they're just, they're people who meet the qualifications. And then we have a committee of people that are formed, appointed by the elders, that assess the qualifications of those nominees, right? That go and meet with them, say, do you feel called to this? They look at the list and figure out whether they're fit. We're actually in the process of doing that right now for next year. So once we get those names of nominees, then there is a group of people, a committee, again, out of the body uh, that goes and assesses the fitness of those elders for affirmation or for appointment. Then we have the whole year. We put those names in front of the body and we say, does anybody have a, a, a question about any of these guys? Does anybody know of any of their, you know, are they, are they failing to meet these qualifications? 
And if we find that they do meet the qualifications and that they are called and that they are willing, then when we come around the corner into the first Sunday in May, we have a congregational affirmation. That's a place where the elders themselves have appointed those that they feel are fit and qualified according to the biblical standard. And then the congregation affirms that appointment, affirms that appointment. Now that affirmation isn't technically necessary according to the scripture. Except that there is no way that Titus would have known in each of these little villages, in each of these little towns, whether these individuals met the qualifications. He couldn't possibly have known that. So we imply that the only way Titus could have known who was fit and qualified is by talking with the local body. By having a conversation with the local body so that he could compare who they were with what the qualifications say. That's why in our church, we do the nomination process. We do the review process. We spend a lot of time praying, having conversations. We put it out in front of the congregation for anybody to raise objections or concerns they might have. And then in May, we don't do a vote. We don't do any of that. I mean, it, it is a vote, but it's an affirmation vote to affirm what the elders have appointed. That's a biblical process here, right? But let's look at these qualifications. Let's look at them in turn. There are sort of three different categories. One has to do with home life. One has to do with personal character. And one has to do with devotion to God's word. Back to Titus chapter 1. The qualifications look like this. He says, I left you in Crete to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he says here in verse 6, here come the qualifications. He says, if anyone is above reproach, that's how he starts, above reproach. Note that he repeats this idea of being above reproach a second time in verse 7. He says, if anyone is above reproach, now it's important for you to know that this idea of being above reproach, or in some of your Bibles, it might be translated blameless. The idea there is not of perfection, right? It's not of someone who's never sinned or is faultless, because if that were the qualification, there would be no one fit to be an elder except for Jesus. All of us are flawed and all of us are sinners. The idea here of being above reproach or of being blameless is not someone who is sinless or faultless, but rather someone who lives an open and transparent confessional life for whom there is no ability to bring blame against them that has not all already been laid out and can be known. Does that make sense? So it's about living a life of openness and transparency. It's not about perfection. It's about living a life free of accusation being unaccused or free from blame. That's what blamelessness means. So we're not expecting these elders to be perfect, but we are expecting that these men are living open and transparent lives. And, that, and that's why we take the process, even in this church, of many months for people to go, well, actually, the name of the candidate you've put up, uh, you know, I used to be in business with that guy, and I actually know that he steals money. Or I used to, I used to be a next-door neighbor to this guy, and I've, I've seen him yelling and screaming at his kids or whatever. We have a time for people to say, yeah, I actually have an accusation or I have a concern about one of these names that's been brought up because the elder is meant, and twice he says it here, to be above reproach, above reproach. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The first principle here with regard to qualification for elders has to do with their home life. It has to do with their home life, making sure that the elder is organized and orderly, that they care well for their wife and for their children. Now, this isn't saying that an elder has to be married, and it's not saying that an elder has to have children. That's not the point. But the point is that if they are married, and if they do have children, that their children shouldn't be open to the accusation of wickedness or wildness. That's what debauchery and insubordination means. Wickedness or wildness. Now, if you've got kids, I mean, even teaching this as an elder and thinking about my own children, there are moments where my children are insubordinate. Does that mean I'm immediately disqualified from eldership? When it says that, that an elder is to be uh, uh, the wife of one man, 
the idea there is not necessarily of someone who has absolutely been married, but rather someone who has fidelity, someone who is faithful, who can demonstrate faithfulness. So if they are married, they are married. And, and there's a lot of people who will say that this uh, removes divorced people from the, the ability to be elders, that it removes those who are widowed from the ability to be married or to be elders. I'm actually not convinced that's what this does. And I don't want to get into a big argument with you here. But if the whole book is about the grace of God that teaches us to renounce ungodliness, it seems funny that we would become legalistic on one point or another. To me, the idea is of a house that is well-managed. In fact, when we look at what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's the question. If someone's household is in disarray, if someone's marriage is in disarray, if someone is, uh, and this would have certainly been the case in Crete at the time, if someone is polygamous or polyamorous, if someone is not faithful to his wife as God has created then he shouldn't be an elder. If he can't manage his own home, he will not be able to manage the household or the oikos of God, right? So it's about looking at each of these elders and recognizing whether or not their children and their wives are cared for well, whether or not the the, the people are cared for and prioritized. The principle being that if a man's household is not in order, he should not care for God's household. And I would say that the implication then is that that man would go and care for his household first. That the idea is that that man would care for his children and his wife before becoming an officer or or, or an overseer in the church. That's the first thing, that his household has to be in order. Secondly, there there are details about personal character. Let's go on back to Titus chapter 1. In verse 7, he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, or the servant of God's house, he must be above reproach. There it is again, the idea of blamelessness. He must not be arrogant. By the way, there are 11 principles here. Uh, Five of them are negative and six of them are positive. But they they sort of balance each other out. Listen to what he says. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. We we know what that means. It's fairly simple. There's There's no pride. Why? Because he's just a steward in God's household. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, I will tell you that in serving the people of God, there are lots of opportunities to get frustrated. And if you're a person who has a short temper or a short fuse, you won't last very long as an elder because you have to be patient. Remember what we learned in James about the wisdom from a God that's pure and peaceable and kind and generous and open to reason. Someone who's quick-tempered can't possibly make manifest the wisdom of God. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. Or a drunkard, that's someone who's got control. It's not saying they can't ever have a drink, but it's saying someone who's in control of his own life and his own character. Or violent. The word that's translated violent in the ESV actually has the idea of being a striker or a bully. He must not be a bully, which we would agree with, certainly. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. That would be taking that authority and using it for his own interests. Taking that authority and using it for his own advantage. These are things that do not fit with the character of Christ. Christ who had everything but gave himself away for the service of other people. What do these characteristics put on display? How do they adorn the doctrine of God? All of these characteristics are characteristics of Christ himself. What's the elder to be? A person who reveals Christ in his attitudes and actions. Not only should he not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but listen to the positive side. He should be hospitable. Someone who is warm and welcoming. Someone who is hospitable. Someone who is a lover of good. Not only his own good, obviously, or his own gain, but but good for all people. A lover of good. Self-controlled. That's the counter to the idea of being a drunk. Must be self-controlled. Upright. 
holy. The idea of being upright is the idea of sensibility or, or having a, a good mind for reasoning. It must be upright. Holy. The idea of holy is to be set apart, distinct for the service of God. He must be upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, organization and, and, and control in his own life. This, by the way, is not an exhaustive list. But it's meant that the elder would adorn the doctrine of God. That there would be no contradiction in the life of an elder. No marring of the revelation of Christ. No lack of faith, love, and hope which contradict the grace and peace of Jesus. That the elder is supposed to have a home that is organized as proof that he can help to organize the household of God. He is to have a personal life that is free from characteristics that would not be present in the life of Jesus. Like pride and like self-serving and like uh, you know drunkenness and these other things. And then lastly... The third qualification or the third characteristic, look at verse 9. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The last piece of these qualifications are a devotion to God's word. A devotion to what God has said, both in his, in his word, our Bibles, and in the revealed word of God, as John declares, in Christ himself. A devotion to the revealed word of God. A devotion. It says holding firm to the instruction as it's been taught. Holding firm to that sound doctrine. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't love the way that verse 9 is organized in the English here. Because it doesn't really catch the sentiment of the original language. In the Greek, the idea is that this person must be devoted to God's word so that they can call others alongside. Or, or it's translated in some translations the idea of exhort or encourage. That I love God's word so that I have the ability to call others alongside me. As an elder, I have to be passionate about God's word. I have to love what God has said and what has been revealed in Christ so that I can do two things. So that I can call others alongside me and also so that I can call out those who would lead them astray. I think it's John Calvin uh, who said that the, uh, the, the, the overseer or the elder has to have a voice to gather and a voice to drive away wolves and thieves. A voice to gather and a, and a voice to drive away wolves and thieves. Well, that kind of work, here it's talking about rebuking false teachers. We're going to look at that more next week, by the way, because he's going to get into some specifics about the danger of false teachers. But what he's essentially saying is that not only does an elder, to, to be qualified, he needs to have a home that is cared for and organized. He needs to be, you know, he needs to be faithful in that context and, and a servant there. He also needs to have character that's representative of Christ and doesn't mar the revelation of Christ. And he needs to be devoted to God's word so that he can call others along and also that he can call out those who are false. I love this idea of calling others alongside. We see in the list in Timothy that um, elders must be ready to teach. And the sentiment here is similar. That he has to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. A voice to gather and a voice to drive away. This means that an elder has to be courageous. It also means that an elder isn't called to passive service, but active service. Does that make sense? It's not about just showing up to a meeting once a month. Our elders meet uh, on uh, the first Tuesday of every month. And, and being an elder in this church isn't about showing up at a meeting and voting on you know, the budget and voting on whether we're going to redo the roof or whatever. I mean, th those, are, those are little things that happen. But biblically, that's not what eldership is. Eldership is putting Christ on display, calling others to live a life of adorning the doctrine of God, living a life of faithfulness, and also rebuking those who are false teachers. And it takes courage. It's active. It's an active role. Christians can sometimes be arrogant, 
They can sometimes be caustic in that rebuke or that refute. But at the deepest level, when we truly love God's word and we understand who Christ was, they become gentle. They become gentle in their correction. They become gentle in their refutation. Titus directed him to set up elders, to appoint elders. The reality is that we need elders. They model to us what it's like to live a life of faith. In Crete, at the time, there were all kinds of different things happening. And Paul says to Titus, the first thing I I think you should do is appoint those who are qualified. Appoint the plurality of elders who are qualified and fit, right? To serve as examples to the rest of the body, to call others alongside. Now, the the beautiful thing about this, and we'll, we'll close here, the beautiful thing about this is that if an elder is in fact called to be so devoted to God's word that they can refute false teachers or that they can rebuke those who are leading others astray, but also that they can call others alongside, then essentially what they're calling us alongside to, when I get up and teach out of God's word, out of Titus 1, I'm not just doing that to prove to you that I studied Titus 1. I'm not just doing it to prove to you that I love God's word or that I'm striving to be a biblical elder according to the qualifications Paul has laid out, but I'm doing that to call you alongside me in that effort. What that means is that the qualifications we see here for all elders are not just for elders, but for every follower of Christ, the reality is this is something we're all striving for. If an elder is, is required to meet this criteria in order to be an example, then the example they're calling us alongside to is the very same thing. The same kind of fidelity, the same kind of care, the same kind of faithfulness, the same kind of organization, the lack of arrogance, the lack of drunkenness, the lack of pride, the lack of greed, the lack of selfish gain, and a commitment to hospitality, all of these things... As the elders call us alongside them, as they exhort us to sound doctrine, they are calling us to carry on the very same principles. This is a call for all of us, and it gives us the ability to live out our faith, right? The faith of God's elect, that knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and that hope of eternal life to adorn the doctrine of God, understanding the grace of God, and putting it on display. That's what elders are called to do. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I pray that you would, um, as always, that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts like a seed. It's easy to look at a text like this and think of it in purely technical terms to go, okay, well, this is how a church should be organized and this is what the elders need to do and who they need to be. But there is something deeper and more beautiful in the text than just a list of qualifications. There is a display for us of what it looks like to adorn the doctrine of God. And that begins by appointing elders in each city, in each assembly, that there would be those who are leading. Not just those who are voting on things, God, but those who are actually imparting to others this deep love for your word, this true revelation of Christ, and pulling other people in at the same way, knowing and loving your word well enough to refute those who would teach something that is false. Give us that kind of devotion. Give us this kind of character. Give us this kind of home life, God, whether we're married or single, whether we're widowed or divorced. God, help us to allow our home lives in our oikos, in our circle, allow our circles to be a picture of your heavenly household, what it looks like to be your sons and daughters. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.